Bob Murphy Show, episode 158. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, what I'm going to do is walk through an analogy to help explain the doctrine of justification or salvation through faith alone and how that can be reconciled with the commandments to do good works, but also in particular what comes in the book of James and what he has to say about the importance of good works and its possible relation to someone who's saved. So I earlier laid this out, my views on this stuff, you know, just not my views, just stating the basic doctrine and then trying to explain it intuitively with references to, I think, Harry Potter and Star Wars, as I'm wont to do. And all that stuff happened back in episode 146. So go to Bob Murphy. If you, so if you haven't listened to that yet, you're going to get a lot more out of this one if you go look at that first. So that's bobmurphyshow.com slash 146 is where I stated the basics and then, you know, dealt with some of the objections. Like, what are you telling me? Hitler can get into heaven or... Some guy can be a serial killer and then convert on his deathbed and then everything's cool, but somebody else steals a candy bar and that's it, but they just can't rationally believe in a higher power without more evidence and they go to hell and burn for it. So I deal with a lot of that stuff back in 146. What I'm doing in this episode is I thought it might be useful to give an analogy drawn on geometry to help explain it. And this, this is something we do as Austrian economists if we're in the tradition of Mises and his a priorism, and how does Mises think that economic law or, or theory, pure theory, is developed? And he says you start from the axiom that humans act, and then you, you might have to supplement it with some observations about the world, such as that people don't like labor, labor carries disutility, and then you can build up the body of economic theory just through logical deduction. And so some critics of that approach said, among other things. Well, that's not scientific. How could you know it? You're just, you're just spinning your wheels. If you're not coming up with testable, falsifiable, at least in principle, predictions or implications of your body of economic theory that you can then go test against the real world, objective reality, then you're just spinning out tautologies and so you're not really learning anything about the world out there. You're just kind of playing word games. Just like if you said, a bachelor is an unmarried male. Look at this new information I've just uncovered about the universe, that all bachelors are unmarried and males. How about that? You'd say, no, you didn't really tell me anything about reality. All you've done is reiterated what your definition was. Right? So that was the critique. And then the way Austrians tend to respond to that is, among other things, is they point out, okay, well, what about Euclidean geometry? There's a sense in which that's just defining some things and then spinning out the implications from our definitions. And 
yet. Are you going to sit there and tell me that when you take a course in geometry and learns all kinds of theorems and stuff, that you're just walking out of the classroom not knowing anything more about reality? Really? You want to say that? All right, so that's the precedent here. So I'm going to say likewise, to me, even though at first it seems like Paul and James contradict each other when it comes to are you saved just by faith alone or does it, is it some combination of faith and good works that there is no contradiction, right? So that's what I'm going to be trying to do in this, uh, in this episode here. Let me have two caveats or clarifications before I dive in related to some misunderstanding from the previous one. In the previous episode, the exact title that I gave it was episode 146, Stating and Defending the Reformed Protestant Doctrine of Salvation Through Faith Alone. So it was the thing that misled some people is when I said the Reformed Protestant doctrine. So depending on how you define it, Reformed can either just mean like, oh yeah, in the wake of the Protestant Reformation. So meaning it basically anything that's Protestant, but it also has a connotation after there was a split to mean specifically Calvinist. So some people thought by me stating this, well, there was, there was a twofold confusion. One is they thought I was telling everybody, hey, I'm a Calvinist, what's up, we're right. And that's not necessarily correct that it's, I haven't done enough work on that to really come out definitively one way or the other. I, I don't think I agree with all the points of it, put it that way. But that's a side issue. I was not trying to communicate that. And the other confusion was people were saying, Bob, you know, we listen waiting to pounds because we're not Calvinists, even though we're Protestant. And so we believe in justification by faith alone. And so we were waiting to see where we disagreed with you and you never said anything that we thought was wrong. So therefore, why did you put that label? In other words, making it sound like this is just something that Calvinists believe when they were saying, no, all, you know, lots of Protestants believe that, Bob, what are you talking about? So anyway, just to clarify, that was, I just slapped it on there because the churches I have been going to for the last several years were reformed or certainly like the Bible studies and Sunday schools that I was going to and the people I was listening to on podcasts and whatnot. So I knew others who wouldn't have nowadays with the modern vernacular call themselves reformed. I knew they believed in justification through faith alone, but I didn't know necessarily, like I hadn't sat through and heard them preach about it. And so I didn't want to say something that actually would only be said in a reformed church, if you get what I'm saying. So that's why I put that in there. I didn't want to speak on behalf of others and possibly distort it. All right, so that's the, the context of that. And then the other bit of controversy or pushback I got was some people were saying, you know, Bob, I know you said you were raised Catholic, but you're misstating that the Catholics don't think if you're good enough, you get into heaven and that's it. Like that it's just a matter of where that... And so, right, I'm not saying that's what... Catholics teach. And I don't think I said in the last episode that that was the case. I'm just recoiling against or trying to contrast the doctrine that I was defending against what is clearly a common worldly view and one that I have heard individual Catholics espouse, right? So it's not that I completely made that up. Like I, you know, I've heard Catholics say that. You could say, okay, they were all, don't know what their own church teaches and okay, fine. But that's where that came from. So again, I was not saying that official Catholic doctrine says, oh, just if you're good enough, if you get above a certain level of merits and demerits and on net, you're good enough, you get in. 
That, that's not what I was saying. All right, so now we'll dive into the analogy. And I want to be clear, there's nothing cute going on with the math stuff in here, all right? So in case you're wondering, like, are you trying to refute a fallacy? And so is someone in the story going to say something wrong? The kid in the story is going to misunderstand what his teachers are telling him, just to give you a little guidance as to what's coming. But what the teachers are saying is defensible. So when the kid thinks the teachers are contradicting themselves, it's going to be because the kid misunderstood. It's not because the teachers actually did say something wrong. Just to clarify, I'm not critiquing teachers in this. Okay, so little Johnny, you know, he learns about shapes just like any other kid does. You just, you see it when you're young and the teachers show you various things and tell you what they are. And so they show different types of squares and they say, this is a square. And so you kind of just learn what a square is, right? You know, it looks like you somehow internalize the essence of it. Same thing with a rectangle. Later on, he's in junior high and his math teacher gives out a quiz. And one of the questions says, look at the shape below. And then from the box at the right, write down or, or put a circle around or, or draw around any of the labels that correspond to the shape below. All right. And so what the shape was, was four equal sides all connected into a box shape with four interior angles that were 90 degrees each, all right angles on the inside. All right. So he looks over and it says, you know, triangle, square, circle, rectangle, octagon, stuff like that. And he's looking. And so he just takes his pencil and draws it around square and moves on to the next question. So the kids get the test back or the quiz back the next day in, in class. And he has some points taken off that. He's like, what? What are you talking about? Of course that's a square. And the teacher says, yes, that is a square, but it's also a rectangle. And so for full credit on this one, I wanted to see which of you kids would, would catch that subtlety and draw it's actually, I keep saying draw a circle. It's actually an oval, right? Around uh, the words square and rectangle. Because, you know, it, it's not a triangle. It's not a square, uh, circle and so forth. The other ones are all wrong. But it's like, and, and so he, Johnny's astounded. He said, we talk about, no, that's not, a rectangle has like two long ends and then two short ones. And the teacher says, no, that, that's not really what the, what the definition is. Okay. And so, you know, just, just go, just go look it up that what the rectangle's definition says is that it's got two sets of equal sides, right? And, you know, so, so yeah, it, it doesn't need to have four equal sides, but it could. And so the square is a rectangle, right? And so, so that's why, okay. So the kid's dumbfounded by that. And he's okay. So then a few years later, he's in high school. And he's in a more formal class. And it's a geometry class. And one of the tests asks, what is the definition of a square? And he writes down that it's an object that has four equal sides and four interior angles. Um, he, he remembers, he's supposed to say a polygon. So he puts it in there. And he says, and it's a rectangle. So he gets the test back the next day. And he's got points taken off. He's like, what the heck? And the teacher's name, by the way, is Mr. Paul. And he says, Mr. Paul, I, I don't understand what, what's, what they do around here. And he looks at it and goes, oh, yeah, Jimmy, I, you, know, you, you totally nailed it. You, you had memorized you know, what we taught in class, that it's a, um, a polygon that has four equal sides and four interior angles that summed in the, the each is 90 degrees. But um, then you also added, and it's a rectangle. And so that's why I took off credit. 
because that's you don't need it. That's superfluous. That's not part of the definition. He said, he said, there's different ways. I've seen some math teachers teach it, by the way, but he didn't want the Mr. Paul's thinking this stuff and he didn't want to confuse him. And so he'd say, no, the way we taught it in class, the definition of a square does not involve that it's a rectangle, right? The square is defined as a polygon with four equal sides and the four interior angles are 90 degrees. He's saying, because we didn't have the 90 degrees, remember, Jimmy? I was showing you guys the parallelogram. That, that had all equal sides, but it was like, you know, slanted or, or stretched as it were, right? So that's why we need the thing too. It's not just the equal sides. It's also that's got to have interior right angles to make it a square. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And he said, okay, so then what, why did you then slap on and it's a rectangle? You, you, don't, that's, you don't need to do that. That's, you're adding stuff that's not necessary. And he said, no, 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 no. I remember just, you know, growing up, um, that's at some point somebody showed me that squares are, it's in the definition. He's like, no, that's, that's not, if they told you that, then they were wrong. It, the definition of a square does not involve that it's being a rectangle. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you probably misunderstood. So he's like, okay. And, the, and then it goes back. So then the next year, he's in a different math class. Kid takes a lot of geometry. I don't know why. And this time, the teacher's name is Mr. James. And the test comes out and the question asks and it says, um, if an object is a square, is it also a rectangle? And Jimmy said, no. So he, he gets that wrong. And Mr. James calls him up and Jimmy's like, I really don't understand. He says, my whole life, I just keep flipping back and forth. One authority figure tells me one thing, one tells me another. Squares and rectangles are totally different things. And so, you know, how do I know if it's a, and, and Mr. James is confused and he says, no, what do you, he goes, well, yeah, they're, they're different things, but, but no, I mean, think about what a rectangle is and think about what a square is. And so if you show me a square, then it necessarily is a rectangle, right? Or put it to you this way. He said, again, just go reread the definitions and so on, Jimmy. He said, just think of it this way. If you show me a shape, and it's not a rectangle, then I know it's not a square. So you see how those, those things are connected. So you, any square, by implication, it's going to be a rectangle. And so again, you, you, you point to a shape. If, if it's not a rectangle, then it's certainly not a square. And so Jimmy, jeez, he goes back again. Again, his, his world keeps turning upside down. Later, he's talking to a different math teacher, Mr. Luther. And Mr. Luther is the one, as, as Jimmy's complaining about this seesaw education he's gotten over the years and how it's, it seems like one math teacher would tell him one thing about squares and rectangles and another math teacher would tell him something else. And he just, you know, it, it's all gobbledygook. I can't make any sense of it. And finally, Mr. Luther is the one who says, no, 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 Jimmy, I, I understand now what happened along the way. They were all actually saying consistent things. It's just you extrapolated a bit too much at times and thought they were contradicting each other or what they told you the way you filed it away was actually not correct. And so he's saying, yes, that back in junior high, they were right when they showed you that a square was also a rectangle. That's a true statement. Any square is a rectangle. But what Mr. Paul was trying to tell you was that it's not the essence 
of being a square. When you define what what does what has to be true about a shape, when we're going to define its, its attributes as to how is it going to qualify and achieve the status of squarehood, as it were, that at least the way Mr. Paul was doing it in your class and defining it, he was saying, no, what makes something a square is that it was a polygon with four equal sides and interior angles that were nine degrees. Defining it like that, you don't need to add, and it's a rectangle. That, that, that's, that's superfluous. Now, it's true, because then you say, well, what's, how does he defining what a rectangle was? And he was um, saying it, you know, it had two sets of two equal sides and angles that were each 90 degrees. So, yes, this, if something is a square, then it would also be a rectangle, but that wasn't bound up in the definition of what, it, what made it a square. You didn't need to ever mention the, t- the term rectangle, right? And so that's, that's what Mr. Paul was getting at. And now Mr. James, though, was also explaining to you that in practice, something being a square, if it satisfied the definition of a square, would also then satisfy the definition of a rectangle. And so that's what he meant when he said, show me a shape. If it's not a rectangle, it's not a square. Because being a square implies that it's a rectangle. It's not that to be a square, there's, that that's part of the definition, that rectangle hood is part of its definition. No. You can do much simpler concepts as to what makes the thing a square, but then once you do that, notice that necessarily then also satisfies the criteria for being a rectangle. So if something is a square, it implies that it's a rectangle, even though being a rectangle is not part of the definition of being a square. At least not, you know, the way we taught math at this school. Okay, so there you go. There's my my analogy. And the, I, the reason I'm picking it is because it's pretty crisp and rigorous when it comes to geometry. You know, we're not, we know we're not using fuzzy terminology or whatever. And that's also why it's nice to do, that's why we do it with economics to defend Mises is nobody can possibly object and say geometry is just word games. And yet clearly we choose axioms and deduce the theorems in geometry without going and testing them. All right, you, to say, is the Pythagorean theorem true? You don't go start measuring triangles. By the way, uh, by the way I'll link to my debate with David Friedman on this stuff. I know there's issues about is the material universe in which we're embedded Euclidean or not? And it's like, oh, it approximates Euclidean space, but really, it, I know all that, folks. That doesn't change whether the Pythagorean theorem is a valid proof or not. And in geometry, they do not teach you to go empirically assess whether the Pythagorean theorem is true, to shed light on whether the axioms of Euclid are valid or are correct or not. That's not what they do in a standard geometry class. They would be doing you a disservice if they led you to believe that's the way you quote, prove stuff in geometry, all right? So, again, because it's such a solid example, that's why I'm doing it over here in the theological dispute. It's crystal clear, I I hope you can see, in what those teachers were doing, that Mr. Paul, when he said, write out the definition of a square, as we learned it in this class, and the kid wrote it out and said, a polygon with four equal sides and angles that are each 90 degrees, and it's also a rectangle that you would say, no, you would not add that to the definition. That's not what you would do. And yet, Mr. James, of course, is right in saying, show me a shape. If you're telling me it's not a rectangle, well, then it's also not a square. So it's crystal clear what I mean in those two 
cases and you can see how those teachers are both right even though a kid might get confused. And so now likewise, I want to say that when it comes to the theology, Paul stressing in numerous places the idea that you are saved not by your works, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ, he is not contradicted when James comes along and says, what good is it? And so this is James chapter two, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay? And then let me go on. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay? So that's what I'm getting at here is I'm saying what Paul is stressing in his epistles is that the, the constituents of your salvation, the essence of it, the definition of it, it's not given to you through your good works. They don't, your good works don't constitute your salvation. However, as James is stressing, if you are saved, then you will produce good works. And if we looked at someone who's not producing any good works, we would conclude that person must not be saved. Now that last part, is more controversial. Everything I set up to them in terms of the what they're claiming, I think is unobjectionable by all camps. What I just said there, some might, might quibble and say, no, I don't, I'm not even sure that's what James is saying. But I think a lot would say that's what he's saying. All right. So that's to me the, the resolution. So even though it sounds like at first glance, they're totally contradicting each other. No, they're not. And again, this is, I mean, this is a pretty standard way of, of reconciling these things. For example, the Wikipedia article um, on Sola Fida says uh, that there's a section on Epistle of James and Pauline epistles. So let's see. The defense of the Augsburg Confession tries to reconcile these, and it says this. He who has faith in good works is righteous, not indeed on account of the works, but for Christ's sake through faith. And as a good tree should bring forth good fruit, and yet the fruit does not make the tree good, so good works must follow the new birth, although they do not make man accepted before God. But as the tree must first be good, so also must man be first accepted before God by faith for Christ's sake. The works are too insignificant to render God gracious to us for their sake, if he were not gracious to us for Christ's sake. Therefore, James does not contradict St. Paul and does not say that by our works we merit, etc., Okay, and then let me just read one more thing from a different source. This is from the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. It says, Paul is writing to people who said that faith in Jesus alone does not save a person, but one has to also obey God's law in order to be justified. For example, in Galatians 3, 3 and 5, 4. To counter the false idea that what we do in keeping the law must be added to faith in what Christ did for us. Paul often emphasizes in his letters, especially Galatians, Romans, Colossians, that we are saved by grace through faith alone. James is writing to people who felt that believing in Jesus saved a person, but that having faith did not mean that a person necessarily would keep God's commandments out of love for God. To show that faith is not really faith unless it leads a person to thank God for salvation in a life of glad and willing obedience to God's holy will, James emphasized that a faith which did not show that it was living faith was really not faith at all. Okay, so that's the way... I would reconcile those things. And again, I don't, 
the reason I decided this might be helpful to somebody because when I was going through this stuff myself to like be clear that I wasn't just being blurry with stuff and just trying to uh, shove something through because, oh, geez, I don't want the Bible to contradict itself. I, I came up with the, you know, the geometric analogy. I was like, well, no, wait a minute. This is like, like a square and a rectangle kind of thing. And then, so that's the way it helped me just isolate it and be clear that, yes, this, this isn't wordplay or something like this. This is rigorous and uh, it makes a lot of sense. And notice too, like it's, it, it is important that you, that you do know what the essence of something is, right? Like that's, that's why someone might stress and say, no, 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 such and such doesn't follow from the definition of it, even though it is an attribute or a property of it. It's an implication of what the definition actually says. Like in all sorts of areas, you would make distinctions like that. Like I say, especially in math where things are extremely rigorous, you know exactly what you're doing. And so likewise, when it comes to something important like eternal salvation, communion with the creator of the universe, yeah, that's a big deal too. And so you want to be precise uh, and rigorous with your the framework that you use to grapple with that. Okay, I will stop there. That was the point I wanted to make on this episode. And I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.